Welcome to the Sample Chapter Podcast, the show where authors read a sample chapter from one of their books. Here's your host, Jason A. Meiske. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Sample Chapter Podcast. This is your bonus episode for March, episode 57 overall. Welcome back. (laughs) Yes, two episodes in the week. We were just talking a few days ago. Now we're back. Uh, Coming ahead, we've got a very, very special guest. Jim Christina is our author for this week for the special episode. Can't wait to get you over to that. Uh, But first, as I said, this is the Sample Chapter Podcast, the show where authors read a sample chapter from one of their books. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter. Follow along for any kind of posts or tweets or anything that we have in there. You can reach out and contact us through those methods. And you can also reach out to us through SampleChapterPodcast at gmail.com. If you have any comments, if you want to reach out to me as an author, or if you have an author recommendation and uh, you want to tell me about somebody that you would like to like me to interview. As we do, as we did last month, I'm just going to do a quick little uh, thank you for our sponsor and uh, friends. If you are looking for a self-storage solution in the Warrensburg area, make sure you go to ustoreall.net and check them out. Give them a call. They'll be happy to help you out. Again, that that website is the letter U S T O R A L L dot net. Uh, also, our friends over at Pop Goes the Culture Network. They have a, a whole slew of shows, wonderful things to listen to. There's lots and lots of different shows, whether it's uh, the the flagship Pop Goes the Culture podcast or the Alamo Draft House weekly movie show. Uh, the list goes on and on. I know there's a lot more, and I probably ought to get a list of those one of these days. But head on over to Pop Goes the Culture Network uh, and uh, check that out. I will have links for each of these in the show notes. So. Don't forget to look them up. And, of course, I also want to, again, make sure and let you know, remind you about the 51st University of Central Missouri Children's Literature Festival coming March 17th through the 19th. More than 30 authors are going to be in attendance. It's going to be a really, really cool thing. Uh, Like I said, it's a three-day event, so make sure you get on over here. Warrensburg, Missouri is, is just right outside of Kansas City. So it's, you know, if you're anywhere in the area, come on in and check it out and you're going to have fun. Look it up online at clf.ucmo.edu or click the link in the show notes. And uh, yeah, we'll have we'll have more for that next week with uh, with our next episode. Our bonus episode, our, our guest for this bonus episode is Jim Christina. He is an author, podcaster, musician publisher, historian, and radio host. Woo, man, that, that's a lot to, uh, that is a lot to handle. Uh, and he is, I, I say in the interview, I believe he is my first Western author. Hey, I, I'm just excited because these are some really cool stories. He's got uh, his main series that's been going on for a long time called The Hunter. Is a series of books been uh, been going on. He's got more than 10 books in this series. Uh, with his main character, Tiger Richmond, which, ironically, <laughs> it's the uh, second time this week we've got a ma- main character who is a senior. Um, now, that's not the story that Jim reads from today, but I just I found that interesting going back and, 
and editing the show and getting it ready that, eh, you know, just the other day our main character was an older person. Well, anyway, so yeah, you want to check out the Hunter series by Jim Christina. Uh, Jim and I talk, you know, he talks about his, uh, his Hunter character and how this was something that had been uh, stuck in his mind for many, many years before he finally got to uh, writing. Uh, <laughs> he has an amazing solution for writer's block that you don't want to miss out if you're an author. And, uh, you know, and before he goes into his reading, I did a little reminiscing about the movie Silverado and uh, thinking about his books and how that reminded me a little bit of it. You know, in retrospect, now that I've gone back and I have been able to read a little bit in his books and, uh, and of course, hearing this chapter today, which is, oh my gosh, it's, it's breathtaking uh, how action-packed it is. But it got me thinking, really, uh, this reminds me of uh, Lonesome Dove. Uh, which is which is definitely much more realistic than uh, Silverado. It's, Silverado will forever have a soft spot in my heart, but Lonesome Dove is something that I will watch that every year. I, I have for decades. Uh, I love this series, and I still tear up. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, maybe I should say spoiler alert, but I mean, it's, if you haven't seen Lonesome Dove by now, you got to check it out. So you know, so if you've seen Lonesome Dove, you know. Which of the several scenes that are going to cause you to tear up? But there's that one um, about two thirds of the way through the show where, oh my gosh. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, I am going off the rails here. Uh, I had a wonderful time speaking with Jim. Uh, you want to make sure you get over, follow the links in the show notes uh, for his radio talk show. Check out his interviews. He does amazing author interviews and uh i've listened to several of them now and the guy is really talented he really knows his stuff and he really puts in a lot of time with the authors that he brings on his show so i highly recommend you check it out and uh, make sure you click on that link in the show notes i'm going to get this on over so that you can hear about jim christina and his latest book jefferson's chance coming up next Well, howdy, fans! Welcome to the Sample Chapter Podcast. Uh, I'm I'm really excited this week. Uh, I, with me is a, a new friend of mine, Jim Christina, and I'm really excited because this is I I think my first Western writer. So thus the the cheesy howdy I said there at the beginning. I'm not very good at that, but Jim, how you doing, buddy? <laughs> I'm doing great. How you doing, Jason? I'm I'm uh, probably shouldn't be drinking. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I got no problem with it. <laughs> well, uh, go ahead and tell the audience a little bit about yourself. Well, I'm uh, I am I'm retired actually. I'm uh, from an Air Force family and lived around the world, but mostly from Del Mar, California. Um, I've uh, been writing Western novels since uh, 2008, uh, and, and I just had this character that was rolling around in my brain for the longest time. And finally decided to put him down on paper, and that character's name is the Hunter. Um, actually, his, that's what people call him. His actual name is Taggart Richmond. And he's not a young guy. He's an old guy. He's a little beat up. He's like in his mid to late 50s, and, and uh, he's a manhunter in Arizona in the 1880s. That's exciting. There, things just boomeranged. I mean, different, different characters added themselves. Uh, new books came around, and... It's just you know it's been a it's been a great process it's been a wonderful wonderful experience. 
Yeah, and I mean, it, so I mean, uh, so Tiger, I mean, the hunter here. This is this is really cool. So the the idea for him is really what inspired your series, and right. and so once he came forward, did you have all these adventures planned for him, or did no. they just kind of pop up as as you were going? Well, it's like any writer, Jason. I mean, you know, you plan to do something, but the character always kind of tends to take over and changes your plans. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> and uh, you wind up going 180 degrees from where you wanted to go. And you wind up with a story that you had no idea you even had. So, you know, the characters will dictate your story to you if you just let them. If you mm -hmm. give them their head and let them go, they'll tell your story. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's great advice, too, for anybody. All you uh, aspiring authors out there or newbie writers, uh, myself included. And it's a, it's a great lesson to learn. Well, so far you got uh, the Hunter series has been running about uh, twelve to thirteen books with another three to four standalones, and right. even in even with the standalones, you've got characters from the Hunter series, which is a great way to cross over and get people interested, uh, going back and forth and check out. So now, uh, when you're planning these out, do you plan them out, or do you just kind of? It sounds like you're just kind of rolling with it. Well, I I know the beginning and I know the end. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I kind of know what's going to go in the center and what order. But by the time the story gets flowing, uh, I let the flow go. I, I don't try to stop and, 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 and fight it because that's when you're going to wind up getting blocked. And I just don't like that to happen. So, I mean, we call it writer's pause, <laughs> you know, but um, truly uh, if you let the story flow on its own, you very rarely ever run across that. So I just, I'm a pantser. I don't, I don't do outlines. I know beginning and I know ending and everything in between is always a surprise, even to me. Well, I, and that's, I've, I've experienced that a little bit, uh, especially through my second book right now that I'm working on. It's, that is a really fun thing. And it's hard for people who don't write to understand that feeling to all of a sudden jump back and go, you've got to be kidding me. Yeah. 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 And, <laughs> and they're like, what are you talking about? It's in your head. Yeah. But the, yeah, but the characters speak from? to us. Exactly, exactly. So now, and and what I, one of the things I really love about this, and admittedly, I have not been able to start reading the Hunter or or the other ones, but I'm hoping that by the time this episode comes out, I will have. This is cool that he's not your typical young gun. He's the best at what he's doing. He's he's an older guy, and yeah. he's seasoned. I guess would be the best way to put it. No, he's old. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but particularly in the old west, you don't get that way without being good at what you're doing. Exactly. Well, he's—I mean—he's good at what he does, mm -hmm. and and he is older, and he's slowing down a little bit. But his knowledge is just invaluable. Yeah. Well, and and you've got a real gritty realism to it from everything yeah. I've read about the you know from the reviews and uh, listening to some audio, some people talking about your books. You you have a real grittiness and and. Everybody just talks about the realism from the bullets to the horses to the experiences. Now, where does, where does that come from? Well, I was a horseman for, oh, golly, a lot of years. Um, and I, I rode Western and I rode Old West. So I had an Old West saddle, half seat, high back, a fork. I mean, it was just a saddle that just would have been used back in the Old West. And that was my basic everyday saddle. And I just, I mean, you, you, when you know around horses and you know about horses, um, if you don't write them correctly, people who do know horses will catch you. 
So, I mean, you, you don't just gallop your horse across the prairie and jump off at night and go to sleep and leave the horse standing there. Right. You know, in fact, you very rarely ever galloped anywhere. Mm -hmm. Most everybody walked and they, they towed it along a mule or a pack horse. Uh, mm -hmm. And, you know, it was just things that were just common sense back then. You know, you got done before the day, you groomed your animal. He came first, you know, he's the one that's going to get you where you're going. Right. Yeah, kind of, kind of like what we see in the movies so much, where the guy's riding his horse real hard all night long to get where they're right. going, right. and then and then he just hitches the horse and uh, let's go inside and get you know do our standoff with the guy, the the bad guy waiting for me. That horse is dead. Exactly. <laughs> you know, and people don't under, don't don't get the fact that most horses can't gallop more than about a mile, mile and a half without actually collapsing. Oh my gosh. So, I mean, you know, you can, you can lope a horse, which is a three-run beat, a three-hoof beat, and trot all day and all night. But if you try to gallop him, it, it's, it's gonna, he's going to drop dead because his heart explodes. And they'll do it for you. They won't stop. Wow. That's really, that's, that's really fascinating. And it's, you know, it's, and it's just one of those details that a lot of people don't know, uh, just you know, because of what we've seen in movies and such. Right. But right. those who do know are going to you know, be reading your book and, and nodding along with Yep. yep, that's right. Yep, and mo almost you know, there's a few things that I put in there that that are that are realistic, and realism is important to me. It's like when you tie your horse up outside of a, a saloon or a bar or a hotel, you 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 always leave your halter on the horse, and you tie the horse to the hitch with the halter lead. You take the bridle off the horse, and either you hang it on your saddle horn, or most people just took it in with them because they didn't want to lose it. Mm -hmm. So guys would walk in, go have a drink or whatever, and they'd have their bridle slung over their shoulder. Wow. Okay. You and anything that. important that was on their horse, like their rifle or, you know, that stuff that <laughs> is hard to replace. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. I guess even even in those times, that would just kind of run off. Yeah, yeah. I, I never even thought about that, but that's, that's about right, yeah. Well, now you've got uh, a lot of your characters are, they're inspired by historical people and people that you know. Yes. Now, how do you, uh, how do you get inside their heads? Oh, just years of knowing them, talking to them, know how they act and how they behave and how they react to certain instances and, and stuff that happens. It's just, you know, it's observation. Is there, do you have a particular one that has uh, really stuck with you? Who's just like, yeah, I'm still here. You're going to keep writing me for a while. Uh, yeah, Steve Cazetto is, uh, he's, uh, he's, he's my quintessential hunter cowboy. <laughs> uh, and he actually is a cowboy. And uh, golly, back when I was first really getting used to being around horses, Steve was a great teacher. And he, I mean, we took day, day, day rides up into the mountains and into the deserts. And we went everywhere. And it's where I learned a lot about, you know, taking care of the animal and no matter what terrain you're in. Okay. So now going back to when you started, when you, when you uh -huh. first uh, began writing in 2008, what was uh -huh. your, did you have a, uh, like a history with writing or did you have any experience with this before? Um, lyrics for songs. Oh, wow. Really? Yeah. I was a musician for a number of years back in the uh, mid to late seventies, early eighties. Okay. All right. Well, now I, we're going to have to dive into that. Tell us some more about this. <laughs> well, I had I had two bands. Number one was called Homegrown, 
Um, and we played around Oregon, did the Oregon State Fair a couple times. And, and um, it was just myself and a guy named Alan Blakely. And um, we called it homegrown because we actually built a, a six string banjo. Mm. And he built a, an actual two string bass that we used to use. Hence the, the name homegrown. Yeah. And then we write, wrote a lot of our own music. And then, um, um, you know, as, as bands go or groups go, you kind of just kind of wander off your own, doing your own thing. And, and I wound up uh, hooking up with a guy named David Audie and uh, Buck Buchanan up in Washington in Tacoma. And uh, these, uh, these guys were just terrific and they were musicians to beat musicians. Mm -hmm. So we got, we hooked up and we started uh, doing some mu music that I had written and they really liked it. And we worked out two and three part harmonies and two and three part guitar parts. And, and um, the band became known as Sundown. Oh, and, that's great. Yeah. And we played up and down the West coast uh, into Canada uh, and we had a great time. And then of course, again, you know, they wanted to do country rock and I didn't want to. So I went ahead and, <laughs> became a single for a number of years and then I just kind of got out of it all the way around because it's just, you know, it takes a lot out of you. Oh, sure. You yeah. know, unless you've given up your day job and you're making tons of cash singing, it ain't worth it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I can, I could see that. Well, now you've also gotten into, uh, you host your own radio show, the writer's block that's been going on for the last uh, four years or five Almost years. Four, now? Years. four years in April. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Now, now, how did this come about? Um, I, I, I don't know. You know, I always thought that it would be a great <laughs> thing to be able to interview writers, give them the entire program mm -hmm. um, instead of a 10-minute slot. They get the entire show um, and, and let them tell us about their current work and then give us in ideas of, of their process and how they go about getting a story and, you know, their dialogue and, you know, editing and stuff. You know, it, it, things that new readers, new writers really like to hear about. Yeah. So that's how it came to be. And our first show was, I think, oh, wait a minute, May 22nd or 21st of 2015. And, wow. uh, and it's, uh, we're going strong. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, that, you've got to have something good going to, to be going this long. And, and this is, uh, from what I can tell, is it, this is a weekly show? It's weekly. It's every Thursday at 7 p.m. Pacific. My goodness. Wow. In fact, we have had we have had New York Times bestselling writers on our show, and they're clamoring to get on it, Jason. I, I'm sure. I'm sure. I'm going to have to uh, find somebody to throw my name in the hat. <laughs> <laughs> well, it it ta it ta it takes an email to guestwb at yahoo. Uh, well, there you go. There you yeah. go, listeners. You've you've heard it here. So yeah, we had uh, we actually we had uh, a writer, John Sanford, who is a huge huge guy. He's a uh, written 32 prey not well 37 prey novels he writes about uh, just virgil flowers I mean, he, the guy is just a terrific writer and he's been around a number of years mm -hmm. in fact you can't go to an airport without seeing one of his books on the shelf oh wow and um he was on our show and he was absolutely a delight and like most of the writers that come on our show mm -hmm. oh we ask him uh, we because we ask everybody have you ever had writer's block and if you have uh, how did you get out of it and his answer was, well, if I get stuck, I bring in a guy with a gun. <laughs> so I thought, what a great title for a book. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, if I get stuck, I bring in a guy with a gun, insane musings from the writer's block radio show. 
Oh my gosh. Well, <laughs> I, I I haven't had near the uh, the longevity that you've had, but it's uh, it's been a fantastic trip so far, and it's it's hard to find. Yeah, you know, I don't think there's a a bad writer out there. Anybody who's who's you know taking the time to put a book out there have have they been through something and they you know they have something to offer. Yes. And and it's it's great that you've got a show that's that's highlighting that because it's it really means something uh, you know for for people to hear that and especially to that writer to get to come on and, and talk about uh, their craft and their their books and mm -hmm. uh, to have somebody interested. So that's that's really great that you've got this show and it's been going on for so long. Yeah, and and actually this uh, this uh, we had one show that was on a Tuesday night this year. It was a special. It was a showcase two young women who are seniors in high school and started their own online high school magazine. Wow. And um, they were absolutely thrilled to be on the show. And their stuff is like super deluxe delicious. It's really good. <laughs> so we were, we were honored to have them with us. And then the 26th of this month, which is another special Tuesday night, I have uh, Tom Lane coming on. He was the, uh, the head uh, detective for the OJ Simpson investigation. Oh, wow. Okay. And he's got a couple books out there. So, and it, this is just going to be a discussion about his books. We're not going to get into anything else other than. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and he just lives about three miles from me. So it's easy to get him. Well, go ahead and let us know again. When did these, uh, when does this air? Uh, it, it, it will be on live on um, uh, February 26th at 7 p.m. Pacific. Okay. And where do we and find this? The next day it will be available under podcast. So you'll be able to pick it up. Okay, and that is the writer's block. So. That is correct. That is uh, under LA Talk Radio, forward slash writer's block. I think a content writer's block. If you just go to the writer's block at LA Talk Radio, you'll find it. There you go. Perfect. Awesome. Well, all right, so now your your latest book. We'll get we'll we'll get in a circle back around here. Okay. Uh, <laughs> your your latest book, Jefferson's Chance. Tell us a little bit about this. Jefferson's Chance. One of my very favorite stories. It's a story. Uh, it starts out as a 10-year-old boy in uh, Austin, Texas, on a, on a ranch about five miles out of Austin. He's bitten by a rattlesnake, and the story opens um, with a doctor telling his mother that he has to take the leg. Hmm. And um, his mother is telling the doctor, well, uh, you know, it's easy for you to say that, but it's my son. Mm -hmm. You know, and we go through that whole thing, and they finally do take the leg. And Jefferson is given a, a, a solid wood prosthetic, which is what they pretty much had back then mm -hmm. in 1863. And um, he always wanted to be a Texas Ranger. His father had died months before, and he had been a Texas Ranger during the Great Comanche Raid in 1840. And he wanted to be a Texas Ranger so bad. And the, chapter one opens with him standing in the Ranger captain's office in, in Austin, Texas, and the captain telling him no. You know, you, you're crippled. You've only got one good leg. And he goes, well, I got a wooden leg. I mean, you know, I can ride. I can do. He goes, no, you know, you can't. You cannot be a ranger. And so he just tells him, look, you grow a new leg, Jefferson, and, and I'll, I'll swear you in. Hmm. Well, it just goes from there. And, and he runs into a, an engineer from, uh, that had designed the Waco uh, suspension bridge over the Brazos River in 1870. Okay. Uh, and it's real thing, and you want to look it up. His name is Thomas Griffin. And he um, he tells Jefferson, he guy's drinking slow gin fizzes. He tells he tells Jefferson that um, I can design you a leg. And Jefferson is like intrigued now. And he says, Yeah, he says, and it will work just like a normal leg. 
okay. So they they work out a deal where you know he Thomas Griffith designs him a leg, and his payment is is that he gets to to provide the patent. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And uh, he says, now, he says, I don't build it. I'm not a builder. I'm a designer. You got to find someone to make it for you. So he gets the, the old blacksmith uh, to, to build it for him. And bottom line is he gets to join the Rangers and d the leg works just like a normal leg. And there's a description of it in there. I'm not going to get into that now. Yeah. Well, and it looks like you've got a uh, picture of that on the cover as well. A picture of it. And that's somewhat what the leg would look like. Yeah. That's really cool. Well, I can't wait to I can't wait to hear your uh, your your reading of it, and then uh, definitely I can't wait to dive into this later on because there's I, I need some Western stories. I, I get plenty of uh, fantasy and sci-fi and other stuff, and uh, I need some westerns in my life. Uh huh. Uh, you know, I remember uh, my my next door neighbor and I we uh, in high school we uh, we walked. We weren't driving yet. We walked to the movie theater about five miles away and saw Silverado when it was in theaters and mm -hmm. it was just like the highlight of our year. Oh yeah. It's a great movie. So, and I, I miss out on, on getting to see, you know, you don't get to see good Westerns and you don't get to a lot of great Western stories. So I'm, I'm looking forward to diving into some of these stories. Well, you know, Silverado, the opening opening sequence of Silverado is one of the best opening sequences in any movie I've ever seen. I, I would agree. And, um, and if you don't, if you can't listen to it on surround sound, you were missing so much in that, in that opening sequence. <laughs> the percussion of the, the guns in that movie are well, really it's, something. It's the crackle of the fire in the fireplace and everything is so quiet. Yeah. And all of a sudden the bullets start coming through the wall. Yep. <laughs> oh man. And it just the cast and everything. So yeah. it's, it, it sounds like uh, almost as if the, some of these characters may have just jumped off the screen and, and into your books from what I'm, from what I'm hearing. Well, kind of. <laughs> I mean, my, my books are a little more realistic than Silverado. <laughs> well, that's all right. I'll take it though. So. Okay. Jim, thank you so much for coming on. Where can, uh, where can we find you online? You can go, um, you can go to jimchristina.net is my website. Um, you can go find me at um, blackdogpublishing.co. Um, which will also take you to Tuscany Bay Books. Uh, my email address is uh, jimchristina at yahoo.com. And my Facebook page is just Jim Christina. All right. And I will make sure and put links to all this in the show notes. And uh, Jim, it's, it's been a pleasure. I, I can't wait to hear this story. And uh, yeah, ladies and gentlemen, Jim Christina with Jefferson's Chance. Okay, this is chapter 17. Burning the fog slowly from the ground, the incessant sun continued rising higher into the morning sky, and by the time the three men and their two charges had gone four to five miles, the continual beat of the sun was becoming almost intolerable to the point they felt they need to stop and find shade somewhere to rest themselves and their animals, but more to check the well-being of the two girls currently in their care. Caleb, that had been ranging far ahead to find shade and water, was eventually spotted in the distance, waving his hat in the air, signaling he had found something. Both Estevez and Jefferson spurred their mounts into a trot and headed towards Caleb, still sitting on his horse, but no longer waving. Reining in at the top of a small rise, Jefferson and Estevez saw what Caleb had been waving about. A shallow stream meandered in the bottom of a ravine with short, stocky scrub oaks lining the banks a perfect spot to give their horses and themselves a rest. 
Jefferson steered his horse down the rocky embankment, paying careful attention to loose rocks and dirt that could have been the cause of a severe fall. Reaching bottom, Jefferson lifted the girl over his saddle horn and dropped her to the ground before dismounting, loosening his cinch and driving his picket pin into the ground, picketing both his horse and the mule. Looking around him as he pulled the saddles from his horse and spare mule, Jefferson grabbed a brush and started brushing his mount. Any idea where them hostiles got off to, he asked, keeping the eye on a young girl. Say, what is your name anyhow, asked Jefferson, squatting down eye level with the girl. Rebecca, came the answer. Rebecca Sandoval. Well, Rebecca, how long you been here with them Comanche? Asked Caleb, moving towards the girl and Jefferson. I don't know, Rebecca replied, starting to sob uncontrollably. All I remember is they took me and Jasper, killed our folks and run. The older one, I think they's calling him Mukwu, done all the talking. Caleb stopped and stared at the girl for a moment, looking intensely at her. Caleb moved even closer and knelt down. Mukwuru, he asked, was that his name? Mukwuru? Maybe, said the girl. Most of the time he was being thrown about, says I never really heard that much. But we didn't talk much neither, so I don't know for sure. Caleb sat back on the ground, looking at Jefferson and then at Estevez. He pulled his hat and scratched his head and plopped his hat back on his head. If it's Mukwuru, that sure answers a lot of questions, Caleb said finally. Who's Mukwuru, asked Jefferson. Estevez looked at Jefferson as he cradled up his daughter. Some high pendejo Comanche patron come up after Quana gave up. He's been running these prairies since the summer of 74, he said, stroking his daughter's hair. Fact is, if and it's him and his amigo Pecos, we got grandes problemas, amigos. Grandes problemas. Caleb looked at the two men, both holding young girls. Shit, gonna be a long day, he thought. A real long day. Pecos rolled in circles for almost an hour after the first attempt to take out the hairy mouths, his anger seething at the frustration building in his belly. He couldn't stand being beaten or even temporarily stopped by three hapless hairy mouths, much less being run off and losing their captives, even though he himself had killed the boy. Makruru watched his friend until the anger rose in him as well as he approached Pecos with care, knowing his friend could and had lashed out before. My friend... All is not lost. They are but three, and we are many, he finally said. Pecos swung around in his saddle, staring hard at his friend. Did you not know the one hairy mouth, he asked. It was the Tejas Tanapu, the one they call Stringfeld, the one from the Long River, the one called Comanche Killer. I saw, replied Makuru. We cannot help which hairy mouths or Tejas Tanapu we fight. They just come, they go, they live, they die. Kicking his horse's flanks, Makuru turned and yelled at his friend as he rode to catch the rest of the band. Come, my friend. Kanate knows where they have gone. Jefferson shifted uncomfortably on his right side. He was learning his leg was natural all the time, except when he lay for protracted periods of time. Then it became a throbbing inconvenience to be dealt with as quickly as possible. Reaching down, pulling up his trouser leg, Jefferson undid his straps, loosened the leg on his stump, allowing the throbbing to subside a bit. Hurt, Mr. Jefferson? asked the girl, Rebecca. Just gets to throbbing a bit when I ain't doing nothing but laying, replied Jefferson. We'll tighten her up after a while, in case we gotta run. Estevez clung to his daughter while watching out across the prairie for the hostiles to appear. And when they finally did, all Caleb heard was a heavy sigh from his friend. They have come, sighed Estevez. Caleb and Jefferson rolled to their carbines perched on the edge of the ravine. Jefferson reaching down to tighten the straps on his leg, making sure they were snug enough for him to be able to move without hindrance. Pushing Rebecca down further into the ravine, he looked at her and mouth, stay down. Caleb watched the Comanches approach, at first a walk, then a trot, and finally into a gallop. 
their screaming permeating their early afternoon skies. Settling into a good position for fighting, Caleb took a bead on the lead warrior as they rushed forward, deliberate in their hunt for hairy mouth scalps. Jefferson took aim on one of the lead rushers, and when they got about 200 yards away, cocked the hammer on his carbine and squeezed the trigger, opening the fight. Jefferson bullet slammed into the lead Comanche, pushing him forward, then knocking him from his horse, throwing him under the hooves of the other warriors, unhorsing two more in the crashing melee that followed. Caleb let go with rifle balls as well, targeting the warriors closest to him as he gauged distance and windage, firing into the crowd of onrushing warriors, screaming and whooping as they moved forward in a rushing mass. Each man was picking targets, unnerving the Comanches as they came. Noticing with each shot of the hairy mouse, another warrior fell. The Tejanos had the advantage over the Comanche in that they were steady enough to take careful aim while the onrushing Comanches were relying on indiscriminate firing of arrows and outdated carbines and rifles on a gallop, spoiling whatever aim they may have had. As the rush came closer, the three men on the ravine started taking stock of each hit they made and watching the antics of the warriors as they tried to encircle but were unable to because of the length of the ravine and the depth of the depression. Consequently, they were forced to remain in a face-on attack, relying on sheer numbers and fear to get them inside the fire of the Texans, were throwing at them in a fevered pace. Jefferson rolled to his side to reload his carbine when he spotted another arrow sticking from his right leg, this time above his stump in the fleshing part of his right thigh. So far, the pain was minimal and the blood loss insignificant, so he snapped off the arrow, threw it aside, and continued fighting after finishing reloading. Estevez seemed to be having the hardest time of it as the concentration of the attack was coming directly at his position, making it difficult for neither Caleb nor Jefferson to be able to move around to help take the slack in the firing. Adjusting to reload his rifle, Estevez felt the sting of a rifle ball enter his left shoulder and throw him back before recovering and moving back to the edge of the ravine. With his daughter down at his feet, Estevez fought like a demon to keep the charging Comanche warriors at bay and for the most part was succeeding until the second rifle ball slammed into his upper right torso at his neckline, tearing through his collarbone and traveling downward, shattering his shoulder blade and exiting out his back, effectively rendering his right arm useless. Letting loose with a roar, Estevez moved his rifle to his left shoulder and again began firing. Caleb, seeing his friend get hit, tried moving up and over to Estevez, but was caught in a hail of arrows and rifle balls, keeping him where he was. Feeling impotent, Caleb went back to the grisly job of killing Comanches as it came into his carbine range. Jefferson stopped long enough to check the damage to his thigh, and finding it wasn't bad enough and no blood had started flowing, it again reloaded his carbine and took up the defensive firing in the ravine. As the Comanches sensed they had scored some hits, they appeared to become more brazen in their approach and often came within 10 to 15 yards of the edge of the ravine before wheeling their mounts and dashing out of range again but every rush brought them closer to the edge and better shot at the defenders. Caleb saw Estevez having a hard time working the lever on his big rifle and finally made the rush to his friend, telling him to take his daughter and get to the bottom of the ravine into the sparse trees populating the bank of the small stream. Taking Estevez's rifle, Caleb scurried back to his position and again started firing into the Comanches. It seemed to Caleb, however, that instead of thinning them out, the Comanche seemed to be getting larger in numbers, and the barrel of his carbine was getting almost red hot, as was Jefferson, who was also keeping up a deadly continuous fire. Switching to Estevez's rifle, Caleb shouldered the big full-size Winchester and took aim. The big rifle bucked into his shoulder, and the Comanche ducked over to his side, but not before being caught in the trajectory of the big 44 caliber rifle ball, smashing his hip and unhorsing him to land flat on his skull before becoming silent on the prairie floor. 
Hearing the scream of horses, Jefferson turned back to see two of their mounts fallen and thrashing with arrows and rifle balls in their necks and bodies. Cursing silently, Jefferson renewed his fury at the Comanches, rapidly firing into them until his carbine was empty. Then drawing his colt, he raised himself on a knee and started firing into the mass of screaming Comanches, following a rider with the barrel of the pistol and squeezing when he had him in his sights. Caleb glanced over at Estevez, only to find his friend with two arrows in his torso and his daughter laying on his chest, heaving in heavy sobs. He scooted to Estevez and grabbed the girl, physically pulling her to him and back to his position when the rifle ball and arrow caught him simultaneously in the shoulder and side. Releasing the girl, Caleb let out a giant roar and joined Jefferson on the edge of the ravine, working Estevez's rifle and then his pistol like a banshee possessed. The Comanche, sensing the fight was almost over, slowed their attack and backed out of range. The hairy mouths had cost them dearly. Both Mukwuru and Pecos lay dead, killed in their first charge, lifeless near the front. Many more warriors lay scattered on the plains, having fallen victim to the ferocity of the Tejanos holed up in the ravine. Taking stock of their living and their dead, the Comanches gathered their remaining warriors, 15 in all, and began a slow march towards the ravine, slowly increasing their pace as they came and then breaking into a gallop, again screaming and yelling at the two remaining defenders. Both Caleb and Jefferson now reduced the pistols and knives, knelt and held fast as the Comanches came at them. Once again, Jefferson and Caleb took aim as the Comanches got within pistol range. One more time, the two Colts barked into the afternoon, unseating two more warriors, but not before scoring a hit on Jefferson Greeley, an arrow striking deeply into his chest. Rebecca grabbed up Jefferson's big Richardson pistol and climbed to the edge of the ravine, pulling the hammer back on the big pistol. Rebecca fired into the warriors, the cake pushing her backwards. But as she steady enough to cock the, and fire the pistol again, as a rifle ball took her just below her right eye, throwing her backwards into the stream below. Caleb fired his last shot and turned to find the remainder of his cartridges when he saw Estevez's daughter curled in a fetal position, arrows protruding from her side and her chest. Fighting to the top, Caleb threw down the revolver and pulled his big bowie knife from the sheath at his side. Come on, you fucking Comanche bastards, come and get me, he screamed into the afternoon sun, mixing with gun smoke and dust. Bleeding from his shoulder wound and with an arrow sticking in his side, Caleb Stringfeld stood screaming in an animal scream, bowie knife in hand, challenging the Comanches to finish it. Pulling up, the Comanches took one look at the savage face on Caleb and the ungodly screaming he was doing, daring them to finish the fight with nothing but his knife and stop their advance. Gathering together, one lone figure rode from the group, stopping 15 feet from where Caleb Stringfeld stood. The Comanche sat looking at the screaming man in front of him, not understanding this Tejas Tenhapu, he slowly swiped this flat edge of his hand over his breastplate. The warrior then turned and rode back to the group. Astonished at the sight, all turned and rode from the prairie, sure to come back to pick up their dead, but giving honor to a lone hairy-mouthed warrior standing alone with nothing but a knife and a willingness to die. Caleb watched them go, tears streaming down his cheeks. He had been lucky. He had fought the fight and come out on the other side. Climbing back into the ravine, Caleb found Jefferson, Rebecca, Estevez, and Estevez's daughter all dead, hundreds of cartridge cases laying in the ravine and on the sides of the incline. Jefferson and Estevez had died willingly, protecting the two girls, fighting to the end for their preservation, but in finality, they were not able to overcome the odds. The two girls, in their own way, had shown courage far and beyond what Caleb had thought they might. The blonde girl, Rebecca, even picking up the fight when Jefferson fell, and in the end, all had shown courage, all had shown their God, they had earned their own gates to heaven. Looking at the stream, Caleb saw the two horses cut down in the fight, a third with an arrow shallowly embedded in his shoulder and the mules untouched. 
Pulling the arrow from his own side, Caleb walked to the horse and gently pulled the arrow from his shoulder, the horse barely flinching. Caleb's wound, although not deep, would require some doctoring, but Caleb knew he first had to bury the dead, and with his injuries, was going to be at shore. Trudging to the mules, Caleb pulled a spade off the packs, then dug around for medical supplies. He knew all rangers carried in their pack animals and found them at the bottom of one of the panniers. Sitting and sopping blood from his side, he finally stopped the flow and was able to bandage both his shoulder and side, taking intermittent drinks of the fiery central Texas brew most rangers carried along with medicinal supplies. It wasn't until almost dark when he managed to get himself patched up and four shallow graves dug, tugging and pulling the bodies of his friends to their resting places before covering their remains with the sparse dirt he had pulled out of each grave. Working between long pools of bad liquor, he managed to get them deep enough that the animals would likely leave them be. Caleb finally sat back against his saddle and closed his eyes against the approaching blackness. Caleb wasn't sure if he was passing out or the darkness was creeping in at the end of the day. He was just grateful for the respite of having to continue to remain conscious any longer and slowly succumbed to the hard-fought darkness. And once again, that was Jim Christina reading an amazing chapter from his latest book, Jefferson's Chance. I am out of breath just having listened to that amazing chapter. It was it really was breathtaking. It was action-packed and uh, really puts you in the heat of the moment. Make sure you go online and check out all of his other books. Follow the show note links for his books, uh, his show, The Writer's Block, on uh, latalkradio.com. Uh, we've got links for our sponsors, our friends, and the UCM Children's Literature Festival. Don't forget also to subscribe so that that way each week you get a new author, a new book, and a new sample chapter. See you guys again real, real soon.